Good morning. We will be continuing uh, through the New City Catechism, and we are on question 27. I will read the question, and together we'll read the response. Question 27. Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No. Only those who are elected by God and, and united to Christ by faith. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who are not elect by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, this, this question and answer uh, points to more reasons for praise. First, because of your great mercy, we have been united to Christ as Christians. Father, uh, the mystery that was hidden has been revealed, that Christ is in us, and so we have the hope, the certainty of glory. Father, this gift, this promise, we receive most gratefully. And I pray that the reality of this gospel would inform our thinking more and more so that we would go about our lives, lives filled with so much confusion and disappointment, with a deep underlying sense of positive expectation. May people see us and ask about the hope that is in us so that we can give glory to you. Lord, this uh, response also notes that you extend grace to those who are not united to Christ. That which is good in this world comes from your gracious hand. On this day and in this nation, we celebrate freedoms and opportunities that are an incredible anomaly in the history of the world. These are real gifts, Father, and I pray that we would be good stewards of these gifts. Help us to use the opportunities, the freedoms, the blessings that you've given to us to better the lives of those around us, both immediately and in broader circles. Father, uh, we earnestly pray for your blessings on this country as you have instructed up us to do. We lift up those in authority that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Father, those in authority are in authority because you put them there, and so we ask your blessing on them, both national, regionally, and locally. Father, guide them that we might live well for you. Help us to care for one another with works of grace that you provide. Father, uh, we pray for those who have committed themselves to advance the gospels and the, the gospel and that we support uh, Lord, protect them. Give them ways to communicate the gospel. I pray that you would help them to pro proclaim it clearly. Father, protect them from acts of the evil one. Give them wisdom. Give them stamina. Give them joy as they work for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, for the churches in our community, we pray. Protect them from error. Bless them in efforts to build up your body. Lord, we pray for our church. Father, none of us are here by accident. 
Help us to care for one another, to learn each other's stories, and to appreciate how you work so that our stories are braided together into a beautiful tapestry of praise uh, in the story of your great redemption. Father, help us to grow in our love for one another. Father, I pray that our fellowship with one another would be rooted in our, our faith in you as our Redeemer. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word uh, that we would love one another well. Father, on this uh, holiday and in the summer season, we pray for those who are traveling. Father, keep them safe. Uh, restore them to us uh, safely. Father, I pray for Kevin and Missy as they go to a conference this week that uh, you would bless them while they are there. Uh, Lord, for the other travel plans and summer plans that... Uh, are, are part of our lives. Uh, Lord, watch over us, we pray. Father, as we anticipate the fall, we do so with expectations, and I pray that you would give us wisdom as we think about ways that we can love one another and advance your kingdom in this body. I pray now for Kevin as he comes. Open our ears to hear what you would have us hear bless him. We thank you for his preparation and anticipate uh, in his presentation. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading today will be from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my, for, your, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, and hey, uh, I believe the three to five-year-olds, okay, all right, going with Britt and Juliana. Thanks, guys. All right, well, hey, um, have y'all ever been in an argument with someone, and at some point in the argument, maybe you ask, look, what do you want from me? And maybe you felt like somebody was expecting more than you can give. Maybe their expectations were reasonable but you were maybe a little bit defensive about it. And this is what we find happening in Micah chapter 6. In Micah we see God is rebuking Israel for their sin. Uh, God is faithful to his word, what he said in Deuteronomy, that when they turn from him, uh, that, that certain there would be certain consequences that would go along with that. And so he would punish them when they turn away. And this is what we're seeing happening in Micah. Uh, and what we read in Micah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, 
almost sounds like a, a teenager arguing with their parent. Now, with all due respect to teenagers, not all teenagers are argumentative with their parents. It's kind of like that dad jokes aren't good jokes. So sometimes the stereotype doesn't always fit. But imagine this interaction. Imagine the parent says to their teenager, clean your room. And if you don't clean your room, you can't go out tonight. But if you clean your room, you can go out tonight. And I'll give you some spending money like I always do. Just tell me how much you need and I'll give it to you. And so then later in the day, the child, after not cleaning their room, learn they can't go out. And they say, what do you want from me? Do I have to clean every room in the house? Do I need to go clean every neighborhood, every room in the neighborhood that exists? You know, what do you want from me? And the parent says, I just want you to clean your room. <laughs> it's just that simple. And so this is a little bit of what's happening here. So it's like, you know, a parent sets the terms and then the child doesn't meet the terms and there's consequences that have been laid out beforehand. And then the, the consequences follow and there's deep frustration. And this is what's happening right now uh, with God and his people in Micah. And so, so what I want to do is consider the similarities between how Israel is reacting to God, responding to God, and how we perhaps still respond to God today. And, and here are the categories that, that I want us to consider. So first, I want to think about God's kindness, then Israel's frustration, third, God's clarification, and then fourth, God's delight. So first, God's kindness. So God has been kind to Israel from the beginning. He is continually redeeming them and delivering them from their troubles. Look at verse 3 through 5. It says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember uh, what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and how what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is asking them, how, has, how have I put you out by redeeming you over and over? He brought them up out of Egypt. Uh, when Balaam was hired to curse them, he turned that curse into a blessing. And so God is in the business of continually rescuing and redeeming his people. And Israel is in the business of continually and repeatedly turning away, doing their own thing. And this consistently does not go well for them throughout the scriptures. Like really in Deuteronomy, we get this idea of the blessings for obedience curses for disobedience, you see the unfolding of the rest of the Old Testament where they are continually turning away and God is fulfilling his promises of what would happen to them if they turn away. So that's God's kindness to them repeatedly over and over. Now let's consider for a little bit, number two, Israel's frustration. Look at how Israel responds in verse six and seven. And you'll notice that the tone and sarcasm here. Verse six with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with a cat with calves a year old? With a, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? The response says that, what do you want from me, tone? Shall I come to you with burnt offerings? Will, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams with 10,000 rivers of oil? So he's just being ridiculous, right? He's being sarcastically. Finally, he asked, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
God, what do you want from me? What do I have to do? And look, that might not be too unlike us in some ways, maybe with God, maybe with our family. But that, that question, what do you want from me? That's a question that can be asked sometimes in, in good faith. Sometimes expectations can be put on us by others that seem maybe unreasonable or maybe unfair. And it might be good to sometimes genuinely ask, you know, hey, what do you, what do you want from me? What, what are your expectations right now? I, I don't think I understand what you're wanting from me. And, and can you explain to help me understand? I'm, I'm not sure what you're expecting of me right now in this situation. And, and, and there's a tone that can be sincere, and there's a tone that can seem maybe less sincere, a, a tone that's less about trying to learn what the other's expectations are so they can be understanding, but a, a different tone that says, back off. You're, you're asking or expecting too much, too much. And, and it's more than just saying back off. It's a tone that seems to be looking more for exoneration. It's, it's a tone that's dealing with a guilty feeling and wanting to make that go away, to be free from blame, to be declared innocent of some kind of wrongdoing. And, and we see this in our homes at some level, between husbands and wives, parents and children, even, even at work, I'm sure it happens. We feel guilty about something. So some dynamics going on. We feel some expectation being put on us. And we feel this tension of, of guilt. And generally speaking, we don't handle guilty feelings well. Often when we have guilty feelings, we say stupid things. Paul David Tripp tells this story about a time when he and his wife were in a fight. She was not pleased with him for some reason. And uh, he's, a, he's an author and pastor, if you don't know the name. He's b- beloved by many. So they're in this fight, and, and, um, and then he in a low moment in the argument, says this. He says, you know, 95% of the women in the church would love to be married to me. You know what his wife said? This is awesome. His wife said, I guess I'm in the 5%. (laughs) But look, here's the thing. When we are exposed to guilty feelings, we say and do stupid things. Like, I'm glad I don't have have a record of all the stupid things I've said when I've felt guilty, like maybe a wife tells her husband that she wishes they spent more time together. The husband feels guilty. And so he says, what do you want from me? Should I quit my job and never leave your side? He's not trying to understand. He's dealing with his guilt. So he says something stupid, making a mockery of her expectations. Or let's say it's a husband and the husband tells his wife, I feel like you've been on my case a lot lately. And she responds by saying, what do you want from me? You want to put my head in the sand? Pretend like the world's perfect and just ignore reality? It's not what he wants. Both are looking to dismiss the other's legitimate complaint in an attempt to deal with their guilty feeling and maybe to transfer that guilt to them. Something's not wrong with me. Something's wrong with your expectations. You're asking too much. And we do this with God. And sometimes we see this play out with the word legalism being tossed around. Legalism is a term that can mean different people, different things to different people. Technically, my understanding is it means to distort the gospel to the point that you would say that we are, we are right with God or we're saved by works rather than by grace. So in order to be right with God, you have to jump through these certain hoops. Uh, I, I've rarely talked to someone who is 
uh, truly legalistic in the sense that they say you need to do A, B, and C in order to be right with God, in order to be saved. Uh, sometimes that tag can unfairly be put on people who maybe are a bit more uptight or, or a bit more conservative than, than us. You know, if someone uh, chooses to not own a TV or use social media, uh, maybe someone would say they're legalistic since they don't do those things. Or, or maybe they're a little bit more strict with their kids, so they're legalistic with their kids. Or, or maybe they're really big on memorizing the, the, the scriptures and reading the Bible, and so they're legalistic about the Bible. Well, only if they're doing these things in order to be right with God are they technically legalistic. Or if they're implying that others need to do this to be right with God, are they technically legalistic? But legalism can often be the favorite boogeyman of the person who is turning away from God. For example, someone's turning away from God, and they will take something that Christians do. Maybe their parents, the church they grew up in, or, or friends. And, and let's just say the issue is, is reading the Bible. And they assume legalism. And so they say, my parents say that if you don't read your Bible every day, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you don't read your Bible every day. And, and those type of people who would impose those kind of burdens are, are just unbearable. And look, that might not be at all what the parents of the church are saying, but this person might be wanting to turn away from God, and they, and they, they need to inflate the, these requirements to be totally unreasonable, and that justifies them moving away. So often when people want to turn away from God, they inflate God's requirements into something unreasonable, which removes the guilty feeling they have for turning away. And look, we, we tend to, when we have these guilty feelings, we lose our minds and we come up with crazy ideas. And, and maybe you've seen someone turn from God uh, who inflated God's requirements into something absurd. Maybe they grew up in a more conservative home or church, and they dealt with their guilt by making whatever was required of them just absurd. Now, I need to step back here and say this. There are some flawed homes and churches. And look, to a degree, we're all, all our homes and churches are, are flawed. But while there might not be churches or people that we've had experience with that would actually say that we are saved by works and not by grace, there are some homes and there are some churches that load people up with burdens that God is not asking them to bear. And while that might not technically be legalism in the sense of that they're saying we're being saved by these works, it is something that God is not requiring. And that's often what's called legalism. If you want to call it that, then fine. But that is a problem. That's a real thing when there are burdens being put on people that God does not require. And that does push people away from God because God's not requiring these things of them. And so in a sense, they're right to reject these loads and burdens that God is not giving them, but they're often wrong to reject God in that. And this is incredibly difficult to see and to navigate. You know, an idea that's becoming a little bit more talked about now is this idea of spiritual abuse, uh, where uh, people in uh, positions of spiritual authority, like a pastor or ministers or, or whatever, uh, put these um, un, unbiblical burdens on people. They'll, they'll take the, the principle, they'll take an application to a principle, and they'll make that application the principle, if that makes sense, if you, if you follow me. There's lots of ways to apply the scripture, and it comes from the principle. Well, we take that, that application and say, no, this is the principle, and you put it on people, and you put this burden that God hasn't done. That's a big problem. And that can sometimes lead people to making, hey, this is so absurd, so I'm just going to turn away from God because this is ridiculous. 
But, but what I do want to say is that sometimes, in spite of that, sometimes when people turn from God, what they will do is they will inflate um, the, the requirements that they think God, their parents, or their church have, have put into place. And that's their way of dealing with guilt. Is that these, these requirements and demands are so ridiculous that no reasonable person, no reasonable person would submit themselves to them. And so they say, what do you want from me? And it's a way of easing their guilty feelings in a way that implies too much is being asked of them. And so they are certainly justified in turning away. But when we are feeling guilty, there is a way to sincerely ask, to ask God, what, what do you want from me? Because I think God does give us that answer. And so my third point is this, God's clarification. So in response to these ridiculous claims about giving 10,000 rivers of oil, or the firstborn to atone for their sins, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, in response to that, we have maybe the most famous verse in uh, Micah. Um, next to maybe Micah 5, 2, that kind of talks about the, the coming of the king, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But in Micah uh, chapter 6, verse 8, there's a really famous verse, you probably heard of it. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, the Lord is not requiring these ridiculous things that they are claiming. What does the Lord require? To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. I want to walk through these real briefly. First, what does it mean to do justice? Justice is a controversial term in our day. I'm not sure how many of you are uh, involved in this conversation. And it seems, for, for some of you, to talk about justice being controversial, that might seem like, how can justice be controversial? That's only good. Well, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, uh, this is a brief history. I'm not going to give it its due. But in the past, there was a rise of, of what came to be known, uh, or came to be called the social gospel. And, and what was good about th that movement in some ways was that they addressed social issues, which Christians should care about justice, and they should address social justice issues. What was bad was that social justice began to eclipse the gospel. So social, social justice became synonymous with theological liberalism. They placed so much emphasis on justice that the gospel, and this is a longer story, but, but along with justice, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy got, got lost. And that is why so many today will flinch when, when, when people speak about justice. But the reason the social justice movement came into such power and influence is because the church is because so many in the church actually failed to do justice. And so they filled the gap that the church was neglecting. And look, it's staggering to think about how so many Christians were okay with slavery, were okay with segregation and Jim Crow laws. And during these times, many Christians failed miserably to do justice. And we think, how could they have such egregious blind spots? And we're not wrong to think that. We're not wrong to think, how could they have such egregious blind spots? And if we think about that, we can't help but to think, well, they were... People like we're people. They had blind spots. I'm sure we have blind spots, and which, which would be probably true. 
But here's what can be, 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 be a problem with that. We can become so paranoid about having blind spots that in our desire to do justice, we begin to compromise the truth. Because we have this sense, they, were, they had these blind spots, we must have blind spots, and then in a desire to, to not be on the wrong side of justice, we can begin to elevate justice over what's true. Truth must precede justice, otherwise justice isn't justice. I want to say that again. Truth must precede justice, otherwise justice isn't justice. Let's say I lose, let's say I leave here today, I don't have my wallet. Kyle Johnson stole my wallet. He must, he must pay the price. Justice. Well, it's not justice if Kyle didn't take my wallet. What if I left my wallet at the gas station? And so truth must precede justice, otherwise justice is not justice. And look, this requires uh, more, uh, it requires more to say than I'm, I'm going to give time, but I do want to commend to you Thaddeus Williams' book, uh, How to Confront Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. Uh, we have, uh, I think, one copy left on the bookshelf out there. Uh, Lloyd wrote an excellent review. It's on our website. Uh, I, I hope you all, all read it. I think it will be helpful just having the, uh, a biblical view of an issue that's important and of, often gets um, hijacked in different, all kinds of different ways. But anyway, I'll just say this. Our two errors with justice are, are these. Either to ignore justice issues or to get swept away with whatever the culture is calling a justice issue to the point where justice begins to eclipse the gospel and truth is no longer mingled in with justice. That's all I'll say about that for now. Next, in Mike 6, 8, we see what does God require of us? To love kindness. We should treat each other with kindness. Sometimes people think that Christians are supposed to be insanely nice, maybe annoyingly nice. The Bible does not teach that. God does not require that of us. But we must be kind. Kind to one another. Kind to strangers. Kind to people we work for. Kind to people who work for us. Kind to people in the service industry. Kind to people we do business with. Kind to people we buy from. Kind to people we sell to. Kind to our family. Kind to our friends. And kind to our enemies. If I should ask people in your family, people you work with, people that work for you, anyone in your circle at all, and if I were to say, I wouldn't do this, but if I were to say, are they kind? Then they should say, yes, this person is very kind. Not insanely nice, not, not obnoxiously kind, but just kind. This should be our mode of operation. Finally, we are required to walk humbly with our God. This word humbly could also be translated circumspectly, or carefully. That means we are careful how we live and we give thought to it, which means we must, we must be students of the Bible. We got to know what it says. And we, we got to be careful to live according to the Bible more than just according to what we think is, is best. And this doesn't mean just knowing a, a, a lot of Bible or having good theology, but living in such a way that you are constantly adjusting your life to what the Bible teaches. And, and this is what it actually means to be truly humble. Isaiah 66 2 says this, but this is the one to whom I will look, the one, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you are humble before God, that doesn't mean you're shy or quiet 
or self-deprecating. It means you care deeply about what the Bible says. If you wouldn't consider yourself much of a Bible student, then you should consider that you are not humble before God. He has spoken, and the humble will take it to heart. Now, let me give a quick review of, of what we've covered so far. First, we see that God continually saves and redeems his people. His, his people t- continually dismiss him, and, and, and they, they dismiss him by, by saying his commands are ridiculous. But in reality, his commands are, are sweet. They're, they're for their good. Who wouldn't want to believe in the kind of community? Who wouldn't want to live in the kind of community that God is describing here? Who wouldn't want to live in a community filled with justice and kindness? And, and we want a community where people walk humbly with God, with a just to, according to his ways. Whenever the Bible describes a community that, quote, does whatever is right in their own eyes, it's a dumpster fire. Like, it's crazy. People are dying, being robbed and killed. It's awful. And so what God is requiring of them is something sweet. Hey, create a a sweet, kind, just community. So that's what God's doing. But there's there's one more thing in Micah that I want to include. You know, as we walk through the the, the minor prophets, you know, one concern I had when we we decided to go through the minor prophets was like, man, it's going to be the summer where everybody just gets beat up. You know, it's going to be like Empire Strikes Back. You just leave just like, man, that was a beating. That might not have been a great illustration if you're not really up to Star Wars stuff. But anyway, Empire Strike Back, the good guys just take a beating the whole time. But anyway, I don't know why. It's not in my notes. I don't even know why I said it. But anyway, but throughout the minor prophets, like God's people are continually just, just taking a hit, right? But we need to know that, that while God is faithful to do what he said he would do in Deuteronomy, when you turn from me, these, these, things, these bad things will happen. There will be consequences. That is not God's heart. Last year we were in Lamentations chapter 3, and we read that God does not afflict from the heart. He has to be provoked to afflict. And in Micah chapter 7, we see what God really wants to do, what he delights to do. So turn to Micah chapter 7, and let's look at verses 18 to 20. And this last point I want to consider is God's delight. What does God delight in? Micah chapter 7, verse 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Why didn't he do that? Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There is no God like our God. What is our God like? He does not retain his anger forever. And why doesn't he retain his anger forever? Because he delights in steadfast love. What do you delight in? Wasn't last Wednesday great? <laughs> the game? Like, even as an old Miss grad, like I, I got swept into it. Y'all have infected me with this virus of being a state fan. It's a curse. 
No, I'm joking. Um, but look, it was so fun. And it, it, it's been fun even since then, kind of scrolling through social media and, and just seeing the, the celebration. Uh, and look, the state fans, we delight. I said we. We delight in our team, right? Do you know what God delights in? Steadfast love. And not to be irreverent, but to use a familiar word, he has a stubborn love for his people. Like a state fan can be stubborn in their commitment to their team, right? So our God steadfastly, even stubbornly, loves us and he stays with us and he doesn't do so with frustration. Like his sticking with us, his staying with us is not out of frustration. It's, it's not out of reluctance because we're such idiots. It's actually his delight. The way a state fan would delight in winning the national championship, so our God delights in putting his steadfast love on his people. He delivered Israel from Egypt. He defeated their enemies. He turned their curses into blessings because he delighted in his steadfast love for them. This steadfast love was not a burden. It was his delight. And that's not like us, is it? We aren't like that. We don't delight in steadfast love like our God. Who is like our God who delights in steadfast love for sinners? for people who he has to continually redeem, who make a caricature of his good commands. It is his steadfast love, and he delights in doing this. This is what our God is like. And what do we read about God in Christ in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Showed his love while we were still sinners, died for us. Stead fast love it wasn't a burden it was his delight in hebrews 12 we read that for the joy set before him he endured the cross steadfast love is his joy it is his delight now with that in mind the next time you're frustrated with god and the next time you think god what do you want from me Maybe instead of, of asking something like, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, perhaps we should re remember instead the steadfast love of God the Father who gave his son for the sin of our soul. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We continually turn away from you. You are continually kind to us. And it is, it is not a burden for you to love us, but we see it is your delight to love sinners, to die for sinners, to redeem sinners. And so when we distort your ways, we distort the gospel, we distort your commands, would you remind us what our God is like, that you delight in steadfast love, that you are kind to sinners, that you ultimately have our good at heart and you have proven yourself over and over, especially at the cross. And would you fill our mind with such things? In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.